Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. As I speak, no one has claimed responsibility for the ghastly, murderous suicide bombing in Istanbul, in which six people at least have died and scores have been maimed, wounded and injured. By a suicide bomber, one presumes to be associated with the ISIS al-Qaeda alphabet soup, which has been doing Western bidding in Syria for so many years now. Of course, there is the possibility that another outfit carried out. It's not clear yet. But I'm working on the hypothesis that Erdogan is a very unpopular man in NATO. He has set up a hub for the distribution worldwide of Russian oil and gas. He is refusing to implement economic sanctions against Russia. Only yesterday he complained that Western leaders in the run-up to the G20 meeting uh, speak, think, dream of nothing except punishing Russia when what was needed was the kind of negotiating efforts that he has been trying to launch on the food corridor over the Sebastopol attack. Russia froze its involvement in allowing Ukrainian grain out through Sebastopol onto the international market. Erdogan was pushing and partially succeeded so far in reopening that corridor. He has been seeking to use the G20 coming up in Bali as a launchpad for proper negotiations. Is Turkey being punished for its failure to allow uh, Finland and Sweden to join the NATO alliance? Both of their governments announced their wish to, but that requires unanimity on the NATO governing council. Turkey has therefore effectively a veto, and it has publicly declared that it will exercise that veto and scupper the enlargement of the alliance still further, because that provocation could beget even more wars across the very narrow waterway into Finland and the bigger waterway into Sweden. Who knows? This is speculation on my part. But I have watched the riots being activated in Iran. I've watched riots being activated in Saudi Arabia. I've watched Imran Khan being shot. I've watched as one after another of those either left never were in or were thinking of leaving the U.S. envelope come to harm on the streets of their country. And therefore, I'm treating until otherwise persuaded by evidence this attack on Turkey as a NATO-inspired attack. 
and I have watched now for well over a decade the NATO-inspired maneuvers which have cost the lives of hundreds of thousands of people in Syria. And I smell a rat, a NATO rat, on the streets of Istanbul. All the more remarkable given that Turkey has been from the very beginning a member of the very NATO which may now be attacking it. I mentioned earlier the bigger bombshell, not that it has yet killed more than six people, though it is likely that there'll be way more than six suicides as a result of the collapse, having been robbed of billions, billions, B, billions of dollars of the FTX conglomerate Ponzi scheme posing as a Bitcoin provider. It wasn't actually providing Bitcoins, it was providing an IOU to very large numbers of customers and very large customers, customers of some importance, like the government of the Ukraine, for example. How's that for a Ponzi scheme? The United States taxpayer is forced to give billions of dollars to the government in Ukraine, which uses some of it to buy IOUs for Bitcoin from a company called FTX, which in turn donates well over $40 million to Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. A loop which could bring Joe Biden down. If the Republicans, as one presumes when the, the counting finally stops, take control of the House of Representatives, they have the power to launch inquiries. I had thought it would be the Hunter Biden laptop inquiry that would be the first cab off the rank, but this one beats it by a very large, exponentially large margin. Because if corruption in which the Democratic Party can be found to be implicated, this FTX company was the second biggest donor to the Democratic Party in this election season. Guess who the first donor was? You guessed it, George Soros. George Soros number one, FTX number two. Now, many of us have been charting the doings of George Soros for a very long time, including his looting of the property of Jews in Hungary because he said, if I hadn't stolen it, someone else would have. A rubric which might well inform the rest of his financial and political career. He gave over $100 million to Joe Biden in this election season. He also funded sundry NGOs that were effectively tools of the Democratic Party. Organizations like Mind the Gap, run by the mother of the young man who owned FTX and had nobody on his board except his lawyer and a former FTX employee. A rat, you think, might well have been smelt in the FTX affair. But actually, this man had open access to the White House and publicly pledged 
a hundred million dollars. Perhaps he was in an auction with George Soros as to who could be the man responsible for the biggest donations in the next presidential elections. He openly stated this donation was in the pipeline, even though he must have known that his Ponzi scheme risked collapse the moment that donors asked for their bitcoins rather than the IOU, which of course happened immediately he was forced to reveal that his company had been hacked and $400 million of investors' money stolen. Now, they were all in bed with this young man. The football industry, the baseball industry, the basketball industry, CNN, and many others were up to their neck in involvement with this young man who has now cost billions of dollars in losses and is now shanghaied in the Bahamas, where financial criminals are usually allowed to escape, but this young man will definitely not be allowed to escape. He will come back in handcuffs for the full perp walk. But what happens when he goes on trial? What happens when the House of Representatives gets to work on him and his connections to the Democratic Party? I apologize for being incompletely briefed on this story. It literally happened in the hour before I came on the air and when I was otherwise engaged. But I'll be dealing with it in some depth on Wednesday on the midweek moats, I can promise you. And so will the rest of the world's media. I can say to you for now, this may be the biggest financial political scandal in all human history. It may destroy the cryptocurrency industry. It may lead to further collapses as other crypto companies are beginning to announce the levels of their exposure in the collapse of FTX. It's going to be a big one. Stay tuned to the mother of all talk shows about it. Now, the third world election, I said on Wednesday, I had been a monitor, even a chief monitor, at many elections in many so-called third world countries, from Mozambique to Pakistan, from South Africa to Zimbabwe to, uh, to uh, Asian countries, Southeast Asian uh, countries, uh, like uh, uh, the Phnom Penh residency I had for four weeks, uh, in which I was the chief European election monitor. I have fond memories of it. Every single one of those elections was run far better than the U.S. midterm elections. Missing ballot papers, ballot papers turning up in the dead of the night, printers in polling places running out of ink at 9 a.m. in the morning when they were facing a whole day of voting, computers misfiring, voting machines not working, courts turning down extension proposals for three hours in the case of Arizona when the voters had lost three hours 
through the aforementioned broken-down printing machines in Maricopa County, which contains the great city of Phoenix, Arizona. The voting delays always result in Democratic Party victories. Have you noticed that? It may be, of course, a coincidence. But in more than 80% of the cases that I have tracked, extensive delays in the recording of results has finished with a Democratic Party victory. Again, I smell a rat in Phoenix, in Nevada, in many other places across the United States. I smell a rat. Now, the Republican Party are no Spartacus. A party run by uh, the leaders of the Republicans in the Senate and the House are not a party with which I can associate myself. They are as bad as the other cheek of the US corporate democratic backside. But I am in favor of justice, no matter who it's for, no matter who it's against. I am against fraudulent elections, no matter who's conducting them, no matter who is inconvenienced as a result. And therefore, I say that if the American people accept this, they are accepting their good night as one of the world's big, great democracies, one of the great countries of the world. Because if you can't get your voting right, what's the point of voting? If you cannot trust that the people sitting in your government have the right to be there, then what's the point of having a democracy? As President Francis Urquhart said in House of Cards, looking off camera, democracy, it's so overrated. Well, American democracy certainly is overrated. But when all is said and done, the Republicans now control the House of Representatives, albeit narrowly. They have the right, as I said, to conduct inquiries. And boy, will they conduct inquiries. They have the right to stop Joe Biden's budgets from passing. And boy, will they. They have the right to stop Joe Biden's legislative program of action, though that will not be as momentous as he doesn't have a legislative program for action. But I want to extend a thesis that may very well be one you hadn't thought of. This election is bad for the Democrats, not least because it guarantees that Joe Biden will be the presidential candidate in 2024. If this had been a bad night, for the Democrats in that they had lost the Senate as well, then the clamor for the replacement, not just of Nancy Pelosi, which is well underway, but the clamor for the replacement of Joe Biden as president would have grown and perhaps become unstoppable. But they can't and won't do it now. So in 24, when Joe Biden's mental acuity will be just as sharp as it is now, although it might decline a little,
two years is a long time in politics when you're 93 or whatever it is he is. He will be their nominee. He's untouchable now. The question, therefore, is who he's going to face. Well, we'll know more about that this week when in Mar El Lago, this week, Donald Trump will announce whether or not he's running. Now, his formerly best friend, Piers Morgan, has just tweeted that this is going to be a very busy news night. He put all news organizations on notice alongside a clock saying tick tock. I don't know to what he refers. Maybe Mr. Murdoch has fired him. Maybe Mr. Murdoch is closing the ill-fated talk TV down. Or maybe he knows something about Donald Trump's intentions. We'll see in the course of the next two hours, and you'll get it here. If not first, then as fast as you'll get it anywhere else. That I promise. I've only got a minute or two to tee up our next guest, but that's as it should be. Because our next guest, Gonzalo Lira, an American in Ukraine, is along with other experts on the subject there, our most popular guest by far. Gonzalo Lira knows everything that's happening in Ukraine, not least because he's there. But Russia has withdrawn in good order, blowing the bridges behind them to the Dnipro. Regular viewers will know that I have predicted from the beginning of this war, this special military operation, which is more properly described as a war, that the Dnipro will be the border between Russia, Novorussia, and the Ukraine, the Western Ukrainian statelet, which will be like Kosovo, a NATO protectorate, dependent forever on you, the taxpayers of the European Union and North America. And it may be that Russia withdrew from Kherson on the west bank of the Dnipro to prefigure what will be a final negotiated settlement of this war with the Dnipro as the border between the two countries. As it happens, I don't think so. Not least because Russia is still fiercely at war to the south and in other parts of the Donbass where there are pockets of Ukrainian military resistance. And not least because without guarantees that the Western Ukrainian statelet would not be a permanent thorn in the side of Russia and a perpetual candidate for membership of NATO, with all that that entails with the sighting of American nuclear missiles in the western part of Ukraine, I don't see that that would satisfy Russia's war aims. But Gonzalo Lira might know better after I take this very short break. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The 1897 edition of War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Read by George Galloway. Available only on Patreon. The cylinder was artificial, hollow, with an end that screwed out. Something within the cylinder was unscrewing the top. Good heavens, said Ogilvy. There's a man in it, men in it, half roasted to death, trying to escape. At once, with a quick mental leap, he linked the thing with the flash on Mars. The thought of the confined creature was so dreadful to him that he forgot the heat and went forward to the cylinder to help turn. But luckily, the dull radiation arrested him before he could burn his hands on the still glowing metal. It is a stunning book, you know, War of the Worlds, written in 1897, but uh, looking forward to a Martian invasion of Britain. Now, I'm no Orson Welles. Listening to me on Patreon will not cause mass panic in the United States. I'm no Orson Welles uh, in terms of the quality and timbre of my voice, but I'm not a bad substitute. And I promise you, if you go on to my Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash George Galloway, where I'm reading chapter by chapter, War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, I promise you, you will not regret it. There's lots of other stuff on there, of course. Now, we've got a poll running. Thousands of people have voted on it. Uh, is the U.S. election system fit for purpose? Uh, I've got to tell you, overwhelmingly, you think it isn't. On uh, my Twitter, it is, yes, uh, it is fit for purpose, 8%. Who are these 8%? Call us up and explain why. No, 92%. On YouTube, yes, 10%. No, 90%. And on that most perspicacious of audiences, my Telegram channel, t.me forward slash George Galloway. Please follow me on there. Only 5% think it is fit for purpose and 95% think it is not. Attila in California is on the line to talk about that very subject. Go ahead, Attila. How are you, George? Well, listen, I've got this figured out. I know exactly when elections 
are fraud fraudulent. Then I'll tell you when. When my candidate loses, the election is rigged. I promise you. That's not always been the case, though. Attila, there was <laughs> broad consensus in the United States uh, that results were results and concessions were made in an orderly fashion. Why does nobody believe the results of your elections anymore when they used because to? Because they're all fraudulent. I mean, Lord have mercy. Do you remember what Mayor Daley used to say about Chicago vote early and often when entire graveyards yes. would rise up and vote for him? I don't know that there's I ever do. been an election that wasn't fraudulent. Well, what we're going to do about that, what does it mean for American democracy if half the country, and by the way, the Republicans got five million more votes than the Democrats last Tuesday, five million, that's the population of a small country, more than the Democrats, if half the country, at least half the country, doesn't trust the government and doesn't trust in its legitimacy. What are the consequences of that? I, I agree with you, and one of the things is I've come down to believe that uh, like, uh, like Chris Hedges and uh, you know, uh, Richard Wolf, there's only one party, and that's the corporate party. We haven't had a democracy in this country in a very long time. We have votes. Yeah, that's, a that's what makes their uh, that's what makes their mutual antipathy so comical, actually, Attila, because they both stand Absolutely. for exactly the same thing. Absolutely. If you know, yeah, they they don't. You know, what old George Carlin say? There's one party, and I ain't in it. And by God, he's right. Hey, let me tell you somebody <laughs> yes. that had this thing a long time ago. No one talks about it anymore, George. Will Rogers. Check out check out some of his movies, particularly Steamboat Round the Bend and Judge Priest. And one of the things about Will, he doesn't read script. That's him. Check that out. Just what John Ford said about him. I will. I it, will. I will. I promise. I promise. Let me go to Leeds in England and talk to Mahdi. Mahdi, welcome. Hi. Uh, so I wanted to make a point uh, and ask you a question as well. Uh, so I'm a British citizen, and I came to the UK as a refugee back in 2007. And uh, I just wanted to highlight uh, the point that uh, uh, obviously invasions should be illegal across the board doesn't matter where it happens, whether it's Iraq, Afghanistan, or Ukraine, uh, the international community should condemn them all uh, with the same, uh, with the same, you know, emphasis, because I feel that the way the media is portraying the war in Ukraine, as bad as it might be, it's, uh, it's as if it's the only war in the century. Um, but before that, we had the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, which has basically affected my life, which meant I had to become a refugee. Uh, so I just wanted to ask you a question. Well, look, it's, I... uh, it's a very poignant and powerful uh, point that you make. And the existence of people who are genuinely refugees is exemplified in you. But most of the people 
who are crossing in dinghies from France to England are not from Iraq or Afghanistan, or if they are from Iraq, they're from Iraqi Kurdistan, which has not been at war for more than 30 years. Um, most of them are from Albania. Now, I promise you, you will soon feel the same about Ukrainians in your countries, in Europe, as you currently do about Kosovans. You will soon regard Kosovo being the number one conduit for illegal weapons, illegal drugs, people trafficked and prostitution in Western Europe by a country mile. You will soon feel the same about Ukraine. I know that because I know this region exceedingly well. Now, more than a third by far the biggest country contingent of those claiming on the beach that they want asylum in Britain are from Albania, which has not had a war since 1945. 1945 was the last war in which Albania was involved. So they can't be fleeing war and they can't be fleeing oppression either because Albania is one of our most favorite Western democracies. It's a candidate member of the EU. It's a candidate member of NATO. Its political leaders are hand-picked by NATO and the EU. So they couldn't be repressing their own citizens, could they? Ipso facto, more than a third of the people arriving on the beach are not and cannot be refugees and should be driven directly to the airport and flown back to Albania. If you don't, I promise you, you'll come to regret it. If you don't, I promise you, you'll come to see these Albanians in the way that you currently see Kosovans as people who are deeply involved in every kind of unsavory practice and some criminal practice in the United Kingdom today. Well, I'm sorry to say that we have not yet got Gonzalo Lira. It's always a matter of grave concern to me when he is uncontactable, having been booked to appear on the show. We're still trying, of course. But let's talk about America first rather than second. I've said my piece on the American elections. I don't know if my guest, Garland Nixon, the sage of American political commentators, agrees with any of the words I spoke. But whether he does or whether he doesn't, he sure is always worth listening to. Garland, welcome to the mother of all talk shows and my apologies for having to bring you on earlier than you expected, but you are turned out impeccably as always, always ready. Speaking of which, have you any intel on what Donald Trump is going to say this coming week on his candidature? 
No, actually, I don't. Um, you know, there's great speculation. It's certainly the uh, the uh, expectation is that he will announce um, a candidacy. And, uh, you know, currently the discussion is, you know, the internal squabble between uh, the internal political squabble in the Republican Party between Donald Trump and um, and, uh, of course, the Florida governor DeSantis. Now, the um, the Democratic Party and their um, you know, talk machine basically have centered the discussion of the midterms around Donald Trump. The midterms were all, of course, were totally unrelated to um, Joe Biden. They were all connected to Donald Trump. And since the Republicans didn't do as well as expected, that is being interpreted as a number one, a failure of Donald Trump, and number two, a reason for Donald Trump not to attempt to run again, and a reason for Donald Trump to, um, you know, be discarded by his party. Uh, I think the the issue with Donald Trump is the position that he takes on foreign policy. That's the big question, because there is an element of the uh, Republican Party that is in opposition to continuing with the debacle that's going on in Eastern Europe. And I think there is a, a, a great fear amongst mainstream Democrats and Republicans that uh, Donald Trump will adhere himself to that element, causing that element to grow and strengthen. And I think that's a fear They're they're trying to, you know, they're, they're trying to do everything they can to discredit Donald Trump for fear that he will be able to be in a position to steer the I don't want to say anti-war, but at minimum anti-Ukraine um, uh, sentiment in the U.S. Yeah, I, I'm sure that you're right. They can rely on Trump to govern for the billionaires. Uh, they can rely on him to be orthodox in uh, seeing the health of the stock market as more important than the health of the nation on all these domestic issues. Uh, they can count on him. What they can't count on him is on the issue of war and peace. He opposed the Iraq war when Bush and the rest of the mainstream Republicans, buttressed, I may say, by Joe Biden uh, on the Democratic side, were telling us that the Iraq war was not only necessary, uh, but would lead to a flowering in the desert of democracy and, and amity and so on. Trump opposed it. Trump didn't start any new wars in the four years that he was president. Trump tried to bring North Korea in from the fold. The war party on both sides of the aisle can't tolerate that, can they? Absolutely not. And the other part of it is, and they can't defeat that. And I don't know if they know it, but that's a reality. You know, Donald Trump, for all of his flaws, has a very powerful intuitive connection to the voting base. He understands what kind of people like and what they want, don't, don't, what they don't like. And he, he knows how to um, how to gra grasp a hold of that. Let's not forget in the United States, the last big blowout that we had in 2006, the Democrats ran a grant, falsely, of course, but they ran against the, um, the Iraq war and they won in a blowout. Um, Donald, excuse me, uh, Barack Obama in 2008 ran as an anti-war candidate. He was getting, you know, all kinds of anti-war, um, uh, you know, uh, awards and things leading into the 2008. Well, okay, it was a fraud, but he still won in a blowout. Um, and since then, you know, we've had Hillary versus Trump, and that was close. We've had Biden versus Trump, and that was close. And I think Donald Trump knows that if he 
grasp that, and, and it doesn't even have to be anti-war, it just has to be less war than the current regime, that he's going to, the, that things are moving in his favor. I think people in America understand now that the, the regime that we have, and maybe one might argue the system that we have, um, exists solely for war. That it's North Korea, it's Iran, it's you know, it's China, it's Russia. But the discussion of um, addressing the needs of American people um, is completely out the window. And if Donald Trump comes out and starts saying what I suspect he will say about ending the war, he'll probably get people from both sides of the aisle. He'll get people who say, "I don't like Donald Trump. I don't agree with him on anything," such as me. I mean, I'm a, I'm over there with you. I'm way over to the left. But the, here's the fact of the matter, and, and I'll have to admit it. As far to the left as I am, if Donald Trump were running against someone and he said, I want to end this Ukraine war, I want to end this stuff, I'd have to vote for him because it's an, because currently the current regime is an existential threat to humankind. And I couldn't, I mean, if I'm going to get nuked, at least I'm going to vote in the opposite way first. And I mean, it's a hard thing for a, a black person in America to say they'd vote for Trump. But if I had to take him over these fruitcakes, I'd probably have to do it. I'd cut my hand off afterwards, but I'd probably have to do it. And I think he understands <laughs> that. Well, listen, uh, this FTX scandal, I know it's just broken, uh, but on the face of it, it is monumental. Here's an American Ponzi scheme involving not like Madoff millions, but billions, maybe as much as four billions, maybe more than that. Some figures being kicked around 10 billions. The guy in charge, who's done a runner and is now shanghai in, in the Bahamas, where the company was, of course, based, uh, is the second biggest donor to Joe Biden's Democratic Party. Second only to George Soros, funnily enough. He gave 40 million in this election, 40 million in dollars that were effectively stolen from Millions of people who were investing in what they thought was Bitcoin, but was, in fact, only an IOU for Bitcoin. And moreover, some of the money that you gave to Ukraine was invested by Ukraine in FTX and has now gone up in smoke. Can you tell us anything about this? Because I sense, Garland... This might be the big enchilada. Yes, I, I agree with you, but I, you know, I take a different perspective. And if you look at things like derivatives, if you look at asset-backed securities, you know, one of the reasons that Joe Biden can't forgive student loans is because something called slabs, student loan asset-backed securities. So what we're looking at is in a financialized economy, these types of scams are rampant. I suspect when th that this is one that we found, and certainly it, it exists, and it's a, a a way that money laundering exists. But to me, I don't see that it's that much different from the rest of this financialized economy. This is what Wall Street is. I will also say this about the assertions that a lot of the money that went to Ukraine, or that a significant portion of the money that went to Ukraine was invested in FTX. 
Maybe yes, maybe no. It's also possible that a lot of this money was offshored into the accounts of oligarchs. And now that FTX is gone, is gone, you know, it's where'd that money go? Oh, yeah, uh, FTX. It's a it's a perfect alibi. If you stole a hundred million dollars and FTX goes down that you simply say, oh, yeah, I invested in FTX and then people stop looking any further. I think there is a fear. I'll say this. I think there is a fear that the Republicans may start looking into where some of the money in Ukraine went. And I think you'll start hearing, you know, it went to FTX, you know, the dog ate it, uh, you know, but some of it, you know, must have slipped out of the back of my car. We'll start see all start seeing all kinds of um, excuses as to where this money went. But I think there's a fear um, that, you know, there there will be some some research into where the money that went to Ukraine went. And if there is ever any actual research, it's not going to be a pretty sight. No, it won't stand up to very much uh, scrutiny, and neither does this farcical election that you've just been through. Uh, the Republicans, it seems likely, will have a narrow majority in the House of Representatives. The Democrats have held on to the Senate, making Biden's candidacy in 24 much more likely, uh, in my view. Uh, to what extent... Uh, is this a good week for the Democratic Party? Well, the Democratic Party, the, the, I mean, it's, it's a sad state of affairs when you don't get blown out and when you lose the House and you say, well, we had we're, we're good. We, we did well because we didn't lose as bad as we thought we were going to lose. But we did still somewhat lose. I also think if we look at it in hindsight and we, we use some level of um, historical context and we go back to what I said before, um, in 2006, 2008, the Democratic Party pretended to have a different foreign policy platform than the Republicans, and they went in and they won in a um, in a blowout. I think what we actually saw here, when it came down to it, was people looking at the two parties and not seeing enough of a difference to bring out anything other than the. Um, the party faithfuls. So the party faithfuls, the faithful blue team showed up against the faithful red team and the independents and the people that were looking for something different stayed home and raked leaves. And until one of the two parties offers something substantially different on their platform, we're just going to look at a bunch of squeakers. Look at 2020. Most people thought with the numbers in COVID and some of the issues going on, the economy was in tatters that um, that, that Donald Trump was going to get blown out. And again, it was just a squeaker because the parties that we have now every two to four years simply say, vote for me because I'm not that guy. But when you look at the last several months, every vote for more money for Ukraine was near unanimous. And I just don't think that there uh, there's enough of a difference in the party to pull out anything other than the party faithful. And that's what we're looking at. Again, the fear for Donald Trump because Donald Trump's not a part of that machine. And though it may be true or false, he understands politics well enough to take a position outside of the Overton window that has been created by these two parties. And that could be enough to make a difference. And they're scared to death. You're going to see them now doing that. Both parties will combine. And we even start to see it in the Republican Party. The Republican Party is starting to go after Trump. I think both parties will combine to try to stop him because he represents a threat to this a threat to the war machine in a way that he may be, you know, 80% with the war machine. But if you're not 100%, as we see with Musk, Musk may be 99% with the system, but 99% is not good enough for this system. So they're turning on on um, Elon Musk. Yeah, in fact, uh, Biden said he, he deserves looking into. 
Uh, how's that for gratitude? Uh, just to make your point, George W. Bush and Barack Obama are going to do disinformation uh, press conferences right after Trump speaks. In a carefully coordinated move, George W. Bush, who was anathematized by Barack Obama and his supporters, is now lionized with them and is running in stereo an anti-Trump press conference on the same day at the same hour. Well, if you look at the neocons in uh, George W. Bush's um, uh, uh, cabinet, they are all in either in uh, Joe Biden's cabinet or in whole, wholly in support of it. The Democratic Party right now is the Republican Party of 2004. In fact, after the, uh, uh, during the 2020 convention, they had the exact same re Republican speakers at the at the Democratic convention in 2020 that the Republican, excuse me, 2020 that the Republicans had in 2006. So this is this was the party of John Conyers. I knew Mr. Conyers. He was a man who led the out of at the out of. Um, Afghanistan caucus. He led the out of Iraq caucus. He's the man who put forth the bill along with, I believe there was a, a House member, his last name was Yoho. They were the ones that put forward the bill that stopped any money from the U.S. from going to um, the Ukrainian, to the Azov, um, to the, and you can look it up, to the Azov battalion because they were, you know, Nazis and white supremacists. So now the That's party right. of John Conyers and an anti-war is now the party of John Bolton. And that's why um, the, uh, George W. Bush is welcome in this party. It is his party. It's, there's not like he's welcome in the party. The ideology is completely aligned with the George Bush administration. Victoria Nuland was Dick Cheney's assistant. Yeah, I knew Mr. Conyers also uh, very well, uh, an outstanding uh, figure. Speaking of which, and my last question, uh, did anyone, leaving aside our own political preferences, did anyone catch your eye as uh, papabile, as we Catholics say, potential Pope material? Uh, I saw one in uh, Ohio, J.D. Vance, a very young man. I have a feeling we'll be hearing a lot more about him. An author, a guy with a hinterland, with a backstory, converted from evangelical Protestant to Roman Catholic, uh, and so on, a thinker, uh, and not a bad talker. Uh, what do you think of him, and did anyone else catch your eye? Yeah, I do think J.D. Vance is a person who, if he decides that he wants to make a move, will be popular. I think it will ha need to be someone. I mean, the, in 2016 and 2020, Donald Trump was, of course, the nominee. And what did we see in 2016? It was a perfect example. He ran against 19 Republicans um, who were traditional um, you know, system people, and he he crushed them all. And in 2020, there was no point in even pushing back on him. And I think that's what the Republican Party wants now. They're going to be looking for a J.D. Vance. They're going to be looking for somebody outside of the that um, machine, um, the Democratic, uh, the Democrat and Republican machine. Um, and and let, let me add this. And uh, just just I, and I think this is important leading up to this, there's going to be a big war because the Democratic Party and the Republican Party now are going to combine to strip Europe right now. They know that they're um, the that the the the. 
uh, European populist is not going to allow their leaders to hold on to this Ukraine monster much longer while they starve and freeze to death. So they're going to pass things such as this um, uh, uh, Inflation Reduction Act and other things so that they can strip the industry from Europe, relocate it all to the United States before they have to get out of the Ukraine um, mess. And uh, you're going to see a, a, a combination. They're going to argue about a lot of things, but what they won't argue with is legislation such as the Reda uh, Inflation Reduction Act, pushing the Europeans to cap oil and things of that nature that will, in fact, wipe out their industry so they can deindustrialize de Europe, reindustrialize the U.S. and bring that bring industry back here from Europe, because I think they believe that they can then compete with China. Let's not forget, Joe Biden said, I'm going to bring jobs back and bring industry back. Well, he wasn't certainly wasn't talking about China because the labor costs are too high in America to re, to to relocate um, industry from China to the United States. He was talking about creating a dynamic in Europe where the energy costs are so high that they can't compete taking that industry from Europe, bringing it back to the U.S., and then putting the U.S. in an industrial um, capacity to compete with China. And I think that's where you're going to see the two parties come together and they're going to focus. Unfortunately for Europe, you end up stripped of um, everything and Europe will be have a giant working class with no work. Yeah, it's the greatest uh, act of economic self-harm in economic history, uh, the decision to allow uh, the gerontocratic Joe Biden to destroy the European continent. Garland Nixon, as always, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Now, the British government introduces a budget. The man involved is the man who ran down the National Health Service, Jeremy Hunt. I say so carefully. Jeremy Hunt is now the Chancellor of the Exchequer, having failed in every other government portfolio that he's carried. And another former failed Health Secretary is in the jungle on reality TV. Maybe my next guest has a view on that. He is the young, effervescent firebrand and now elected councillor in the Royal Borough of Kingston, along with his grandmother, who won a smashing by-election victory this week. So his family has two members on the Kingston Council now. I suppose that makes James Giles the leader of that group, or maybe his grandmother's going to pull seniority. Who knows? Let's ask him. James Giles, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Uh, answer that first of all. Who is the leader, you or your granny? Uh, I'll be taking the position of Greater George, and it'll be a, a fun ride, I'm sure. <laughs> okay, give her my congratulations, please, and I the congratulations will. of all of the uh, viewers. Let's start with the ridiculous before going on to the banal. Uh, how did it come to pass that uh, Matt Hancock, uh, the former health secretary, who had to resign in disgrace, having been caught on his own office CCTV, uh, groping his, uh, his visitor, uh, with whom he has now eloped. And presumably he's in the jungle to make money to keep her in the style to which she was formerly accustomed, which will not be easy, as uh, her former husband is a multimillionaire. Go ahead, James. 
Well, I think you're right. I mean, the first time I came on this show, we spoke about the now former Culture Secretary Nadine Dorries going down under to eat camel toes and do goodness knows what else. And uh, it seems Matt Hancock is carrying on that fine tradition of Tory MPs. I believe the latest is that he was eating a kangaroo's penis. Uh, among other things. So, you know, it's clear that Matt Hancock doesn't have a future in British uh, frontline politics after that uh, really rather appalling incident. Uh, whilst we were all locked up in our homes, not able to see our loved ones, he was, uh, you know, shacking it up with uh, his political assistant, of all people, funded by the taxpayer. So, uh, yeah, I'm quite sure it's about trying to make money for Mr. Hancock. Uh, it's about him trying to develop uh, a new career, I'm sure, perhaps become a, an Ed Balls-esque kind of figure. The only problem is that, unlike Ed Balls, who didn't really have uh, much going for him, and as a result, people didn't really know who he was when he was an MP or what he stood for, people definitely know what Matt Hancock uh, stands for and what he's willing to do to try and boost his image. And it would appear that Matt Hancock has gone down under to, if you'll pardon the phrase, eat cock. Yeah, well, uh, personally, I prefer the camel toe to the camel's penis, uh, but that's just uh, my preference. Uh, the uh, ugliness of it all is leading to uh, an atmosphere in the country, so far as I can see, in which Hancock is going to come out even more hated than he was when he went in, which won't do him a great deal of good in any new career he seeks to launch. No, absolutely. I mean, Matt Hancock is, by all accounts, the second highest paid contestant on that uh, reality TV show this year. I believe the highest paid, uh, paid is the singer Boy George. But he's earning a very hefty appearance fee uh, for doing this. It's in the mid-six figures. And uh, who knows what will come out of it. I mean, when Nadine Dorries took to the jungle, she got a book deal, and now she's set at the end of this parliamentary term to end up with a life peerage in the House of Lords. I can't quite see the same outcome for Matt Hancock, but they say any publicity is good publicity. And given that no prime minister will ever appoint him to their cabinet again, not even the doomed Liz Truss, uh, appointed Matt Hancock in the dying days of her government. You know, he really has uh, cooked his goose. So I assume he's trying to find a new income source for him and perhaps his uh, secretary to, uh, you know, live a rather life of luxury whilst the rest of the country suffers at the hands of what has been 12 years of Tory failure, made much worse by Trussonomics and the autumn statement which will be coming out this Thursday. So tell us about Thursday. What's likely to be in it? What pain do they have in store for us? Well, look, Jeremy Hunt, and I'll also pronounce his uh, name carefully, and we won't want any gaffes on air. Jeremy Hunt, in the past, was known as the butcher of the National Health Service, but it looks like he's about to become the butcher of all government services. I mean, he's been left with a really rather dire situation, a 50 billion pound black hole in the country's finances, largely as a result of Liz Truss's disastrous and short-lived economic policies. And so he's got £50 billion worth 
uh, to make up for. Now, he's got a number of options. Stealth taxes would be the uh, most obvious move for him to do so. Uh, you know, passing on, uh, increasing things like inheritance tax, uh, uh, sorry, lowering inheritance tax thresholds, increasing the amount of inheritance tax people pay. He could try and slash departmental budgets, but as we know, departments like the health service and social care are already stretched to the bare bones and to the limit. And so he would really struggle, I think, to find palatable cuts uh, within that. He could try and pass the buck on to local authorities. He could increase council tax significantly, increase the burden on local authorities to deliver things like social care. Now, of course, full disclosure, I am in local government and I personally wouldn't want to see that, but it's perhaps more palatable than some of the other options. And the other would be, of course, to lower the threshold at which people begin paying the top rate of income tax. At the moment, it is £150,000 you have to earn before you start paying that top 50% rate of income tax. And there's an argument that in these times when everyone's struggling, that actually £150 is a rather large sum of money. My issue, though, with it, George, isn't that the government is looking to increase taxes. If we're increasing taxes to spend on public services to improve society, I usually have no issue with that. My problem is that we're increasing taxes to pick up the mess that was left by Liz Truss and her cronies who will now force through some really damaging decisions on the people of Britain. And I think that really is something that is quite shocking and appalling. I'll give you an idea. Uh, the, uh, I paid more tax last year than Shell, the oil company, did in Britain. So did you. So did every British person watching this. I know that because they paid nothing at all. Uh, what about a windfall tax on the oil and gas and energy companies that are raking in super profits, undreamt of profits, or supermarkets uh, which are raking in record profits? What about a windfall tax on the richest companies in Britain. Well, that would certainly make sense, wouldn't it? But of course, the Conservatives, I'm sure, wouldn't want to upset lots of their donors who, let us not forget, give millions to the party every year. We will, of course, they wouldn't want to uh, see that. Now, if Labour had anything about them, they would surely be suggesting something like this. And the autumn statement, when it comes out on Thursday, I think will be a bitter pill for Labour. Because Labour has, in the past, agreed with some of the trussonomics proposed. They agreed with reversing the increase in national insurance. They agreed with uh, lowering uh, the amount of income tax that people pay at the basic rate. They agreed with a lot of these measures that have left the country in a mess. Now, the government is looking to, in fact, cut the amount of support it will give households uh, in energy bills from April. It was meant to be for two years, but Jeremy Hunt is set to cut that back to only a six-month support package. It would make a huge amount of sense to the people in this country to take off the rich and the greedy and give it to the poor, a Robin Hood tax, if you will. The windfall tax makes perfect sense, and it bemuses me as to why the Conservatives don't pursue this option. Rishi Sunak, when he was 
Chancellor was adamant that he would not pursue it. They have done a very small windfall tax, but uh, it really is uh, a very odd state of affairs for this Conservative government. I think they're dead, I think they're out of ideas. And they're having to embrace ideas that previously they would never have countenanced uh, in order to make up for their economic mess. But yes, I would love to see uh, a windfall tax. I think it's one of the most blindingly obvious ways to plug some of this shortfall that could really help uh, the ordinary people of the country. How is, finally, thanks James for uh, stepping in, how is the uh, premiership of uh, Sunak? I, I saw him as a kind of miniature Tony Blair, but having seen him at the dispatch box and some of his public statements, he ain't no Tony Blair. He, he really doesn't have the aplomb, the polish, the ability to fake the sincerity that Blair had. At least that's my take. What's yours? Uh, yeah, no, mine is much the same. Look, let's be quite clear. Rishi Sunak is a placeholder for the Conservative Party. The government is collapsing before our very eyes. And it will only be a matter of time, I believe, before a general election will have to be called. The uh, options for the Conservative Party are pretty grim. Uh, they've had a disastrous leader in Liz Truss, who will be, I think, erased from the history books. Such was the shortness of her tenure at number 10. And Rishi Sunak is just there until the Conservatives can go into the wilderness and perhaps try and uh, find their soul again and find what they really stand for. So uh, I don't think Rishi will ever really have much time to make much of an impression on the country. The one thing I will give credit to the Conservatives for is they appeared, for a time at least, to have mastered something that no other uh, party has ever managed in British politics, which is to reinvent themselves time and time again while still in government. Parties normally need a period in opposition to do that, but when you think of the 12 years the Conservatives have had in power, Cameron to May to Johnson to Trush to Sunak, it really is a remarkable feat that they are uh, managing to cling on for so long. They are the great survivors, but I think for them, their luck's run out. They've uh, come to the end of the road, and uh, they will need some time to regroup. The problem they've got, though, George, is they are so poorly performing in the polls that they could well end up with less than 200 seats in Parliament come the next election if they aren't careful. And so who will they be left with? There's no obvious heir to the throne. And so we could be seeing an extended period with the Conservatives in opposition. Uh, but, you know, the Labour Party moving to the right under Keir Starmer, will it be any different? I think that's the question that will be on lots of people's minds. How will Labour deliver differently for the people of Britain? And at the moment, I'm certainly unclear on what Labour are offering. You and me both. Councillor James Giles, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. How's the poll going? Is the US election system fit for purpose? And again, it's overwhelming. YouTube, uh, they're doing a bit better. 12% of you on YouTube uh, think that it is fit for purpose. 88% not. Uh, and on Telegram, they're still stuck on just five and on Twitter, stuck on nine. You can vote right up to the end of the show. Please get your uh, votes in. A quick break and then more calls. George is in Scotland. 
wants to talk about Ukraine. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, George. Uh, question I was going to ask. I'm glad you brought up the, the total coin that Ukraine war is. I know that I understand the BBC have a, a government agenda to push, but I switched on the Senator this morning, and the first words that came out of David Dumbleby's mouth was it, the golden flash of the Ukrainian flag on top of the Commonwealth Office with the U Union flag at them, the back end of it. So there is an agenda going on. I don't know why we keep supporting Ukraine. Well, uh, it's a long story. I've covered it many times. Uh, I'll not uh, run through all of my arguments, but I share your disgust, really, at the exploitation of the genuine sentiments of the people on Remembrance Sunday. These politicians, their poppies ever larger, worn ever earlier, their faces waxed in fake grief, are the very politicians who sent so many of our young men to die in needless wars in the first place. And the conflation, because I want to remember fondly and with reverence those who fell in the First World War, in the Second World War. I want to. But if you are going to conflate it with the war in Ukraine, I have to switch off. Not just literally, but metaphorically also. You are actually exploiting the sense of reverence for war veterans, and you are damaging uh, the British Legion and the other charities that deal with veteran affairs, you're damaging them. Because if you're saying to someone like me or you, George, if you support this, you've got to support the Ukraine war. Well, I don't. I don't at all support the Ukraine war and have opposed it from the day that it began in 2014, not February of 2022. Thanks, George. Great call. Robert is in Oregon in the United States. Let's hear from him. Robert, on you go. Wanted to ask, in light of another uh, election, what do you think the Democrats are going to be able to do with Joe Biden? I can't see him lasting another two years. Let another, let alone another six years. Uh, would they go as far well, as to I, make him the next I think, Edward uh, the second? As I said, uh, yeah, as I said earlier, Robert, I think it more or less guarantees him the nomination, unless he literally comes out without his trousers on, or uh, he's led away by his nurse babbling. Uh, he's going to be the Democratic nominee. And as you say, after another two years, and with four years stretched out in front of him, we've had gerontocratic leaders before, usually in the former Soviet Union. Uh, Chernenko uh, was a spry cub compared to Joe Biden, and yet we all regarded him as as old as the hills and unfit for purpose. Uh, so... I actually think that the outcome on Tuesday, although it's Sunday and we don't yet know the full outcome, uh, is, is uh, more or less guaranteeing 
Biden uh, at the top of the ticket. And I think if the Republicans choose someone uh, who has anything about them at all, it might be Trump, it might be DeSantis, maybe my, uh, my uh, new man, J.D. Vance, as, uh, as vice president material, uh, will beat Joe Biden or Kamala Harris. Certainly beat both of them on the ticket together. Last word to you, Robert. So it was my pleasure to see you speak at Arizona State University a few years ago. Oh, wow. And there will always be a place in that. my heart for you for the way you stood up in Congress about the Iraq war. God bless you, Robert. Uh, I, I remember my trip to Arizona very well. I have so many funny stories uh, about it, apart from the wonderful hospitality of the people there and the crowd at the meeting. Uh, it's the one and only time I've eaten alligator. Uh, I ate it uh, in a, a roadside cafe. It's actually delicious, to be honest. Uh, but it was also uh, when I saw Iranians in Arizona voting in the presidential elections in Iran. So heinous was the tyranny in Iran, they allowed Iranians in Arizona to vote in their presidential election. If I recall, 44 people voted, only one of whom voted for Ahmadinejad, who won. The other 43 voted for the opposition candidates, but they were given the right to vote. And I'll tell you what, they counted those votes a lot more efficiently than the people running elections in Arizona today, Robert, I must say. Thanks for uh, giving me the opportunity to remember that Sunshine State. I loved it uh, very much indeed. I'm actually going to the Northeast in February, Tuesday, February the 7th. I'm having a mother of all roadshows in Sunderland, uh, which doesn't get many. Uh, top-flight political meetings. Uh, it's a Labour one-party state kind of affair. But there's a lot of great people in Sutherland that would like to hear a different point of view. After all, what has Labour done for them? Precious little in recent decades, that's for sure. Oh, there's the poster. Get your tickets at ticketsource.co.uk in Sunderland or the whole of the North East. Uh, please make your way uh, to Sunderland. We've got a very fine theatre space that we'll be uh, operating in there. Very nice poster, that. I must say congrats to whoever made it. Now, Gonzalo Lira is one of the very few voices from inside Ukraine that anybody in the West has been able to hear giving a different perspective to the wall-to-wall -wall propaganda that the vast majority of people in Western countries have been fed for eight long months now. Many of them have begun to uh, regurgitate it as if it was gospel, but others are vomiting at the diet that they have been force-fed because they know instinctively that it cannot be true. For the, those lucky enough to find platforms where Gonzalo Lira can still speak, they get to hear the quality that you are about to hear now. 
Gonzalo, thanks uh, for joining us. Um, let's start with the uh, obvious news. Uh, the Russian withdrawal from Kherson, the capital of uh, one of the self-declared republics, and now uh, having had a referendum, a part of Russia. So Russia has just given up a part of its own territory. Why did it do that? Well, before anything, I just want to apologize to you personally, and please forgive me because I screwed up the time zone. I was supposed to be on your show an hour ago, and I screwed up horribly. Please forgive oh, me right. because we're, you've always been so kind course, to me, and, and I feel relieved. I was disrespecting you. We're relieved to oh, see no, you. No, I just want to tell you that because you've always been so kind to me, and I feel as if I disrespected you. Please accept my apologies before anything else. Of course. Now, in so of course. Oh, thank you very much. And insofar as the situation in Kherson is concerned, well, we have to look at it from the point of view of the Russians. See, because it's all good and fine to say that the Ukrainians recaptured territory and so forth, but from the point of view, militarily speaking, the Russians had across the Dnieper River. They had approximately 20,000 men, uh, some estimates put it at 30,000 men, in open steppe terrain that was difficult to defend. Now, they were successfully defending it for the entire length of this operation, because do keep in mind, this was the first area that was captured by the Russians at the start of the special military operation. And they were holding it without any problem, but they did require to have some of their better troops there. They had specifically paratroopers there that were essentially defending open steppe terrain and the city of Kherson. Now, we always have to remember, as Clausewitz wrote, you don't fight for territory, you fight against armies. When the op opposite army is destroyed, then you've won the war. It doesn't matter the territory that you hold. Now, the Russians very clearly, from a political perspective, from the perspective of optics and propaganda, this is a loss, and one could characterize it as a quote-unquote catastrophic loss. Militarily speaking, it's not. In fact, in many ways, it's beneficial to the Russians because they are ceding ground, the, um, the right bank of the Dnieper River, that is open-stepped terrain that is actually lower than the uh, um, left bank of the Dnieper River, that is the south side of the river, which is higher ground. Now, of course, the river is quite wide, and so it becomes a natural barrier. On top of that, the Russians, as they withdrew, they destroyed the bridges connecting the north to the south. And so all of a sudden, the Russians find themselves needing far fewer troops to depend, defend this new line, because, of course, there's the river there. And the river is very wide, if you look at a map. And so... It's going to be easy to defend for the Russians so they can dedicate a lot of those forces that were on the north side of the river, river previous to, to the withdrawal. They can now assign them to other areas of the front line. So it is consolidating their front line and it is long term more beneficial to them. There is obviously the political setback of having lost a Russian city because they are claiming that the region of Kherson, including the city of Kherson, is now Russian territory. But the Russians have historically been more than willing to give up territory in order to conserve their army. And in the end, they always prevail because at the end of the day, territory doesn't matter. What matters is the opposing armed force. And we have to keep in mind something else. 
the Zelensky regime forces are at the very end of their tether. They have run out of their own weaponry. They're, they're dependent exclusively on NATO weaponry, and NATO is running out of those spare weapons that they can sell, send to Ukraine. There's also the issue that the Russians have been pounding the electrical system. And for those of you who don't know, the electrical system, it's not a punitive measure against the civilians in Ukraine, in Western Ukraine especially, but rather the train system runs on electricity. So by destroying the electrical substations, those trains no longer can move. And of course, you need those trains to move troops and weapons, the weapons that were coming from the West. Now, the Russians are continuing with this attack. It's a consistent pace of approximately 100 attacks per day, or numbers to that effect. And so they are giving up this terrain that, in terms of optics, looks bad. But in terms of their own military position, it actually improves the situation because they're going to need far fewer men to defend this new contact line in Kherson because of the river. And they will be able to dedicate those paratroopers, especially, in other areas. We also have to factor in another, fa uh, another issue, which is that the Russians called up 300,000 men, or at least they say that they called up 300,000 men. I personally believe it was far higher, but that's for another conversation. The point is, they called up 300,000 men. Already 50,000 of, of those men are in the combat area of the south of Ukraine, and many more are expected. These uh, 50,000 men who have arrived have arrived with their gear, their weaponry, tanks, and what have you. And so the Russians are clearly building up an army. And the fact that they are withdrawing from this territory in Kherson that was difficult to defend did not con uh, confer any kind of uh, operational advantage and was essentially a drain on them. Clearly, they are marshalling their forces for some large-scale attack. Now, as to whether and this what, conflict what will be that, frozen... What might that be, Gonzalo? Where, where might these uh, reinforcements be headed? That's the middle question. Um, nobody's really clear. There are multiple possibilities. There is the possibility that they come from the north in Belarus and strike south and try to cut off uh, Ukraine. It could be that... They use these forces from Belgorod, which is just across uh, the border here in Kharkov, from Belgorod, strike into the Kharkov region, or it could be that they use them uh, in the Donbass area around the city of Donetsk. And really, at, at this stage, we don't know, but clearly the Russians do. Clearly, this was the reason that they brought in Surovikin. Remember that when Surovikin, the general who is now in overall uh, command of the, of the war, the first thing that he said was that difficult decisions would have to be made. Clearly, the decision to withdraw from Kherson was that decision that he was referring to. And clearly, they brought him in because he had an overall strategy. Because this is my thinking about the overall war so far. On February 24th, the Russians started the special military operation. And for the first month and a half, until the very beginning of April, they tried very hard to negotiate some sort of settlement, some sort of ceasefire agreement with the Zelensky regime. That was undercut and undermined by Boris Johnson, who flew out, if you recall, in early April. And after that, the negotiations between the Zelensky regime and Russia were broken off. And since then, until 
early September, there has been this slow grinding war, and it seems to me to have been some sort of attempt to negotiate or politically settle this dispute. At the same time, the Russians were gathering their uh, political allies in China, in India, in the global south, and showing to them that this was really a war not between Russia and Ukraine, but rather NATO against Russia, and that the Russians were defending themselves. Clearly, the global south and China and India have come to the conclusion that this is what's happening and they are on the side of Russia. And so now it seems that starting in September, the Russians have basically decided, okay, the gloves are off. And when they called up the 300,000 men, and at the same time, or roughly the same time, named uh, General Sergei um, Surovikin as the overall commander, clearly the Kremlin made the decision that they are now in it to win it, as they say. And I think that the Russians are, the Surovikin under Surovikin's command, are clearly preparing for some sort of major offensive. The specifics of it, I would be completely speculating. It could be anything. But clearly they have that the gloves are coming off and they are going to do everything in their power to win it. Now, here comes a key issue that I'm going to be doing a video about this uh, tomorrow, as a matter of fact. You see, the uh, Ukraine forces, the Zelensky regime, all of their equipment, which was winterized, has been pretty much destroyed. They are operating with NATO equipment. That equipment is not winterized. It is not designed, nor does it have the maintenance or the lubricants to weather through the harsh winter that is coming. I've lived in Ukraine for a number of years now. I can tell you that the winters here are horrible. And compared to Northern European winters, I mean, Northern Europe does not suffer the winters that the Ukrainian steppe suffers. The NATO weaponry will not be prepared for that kind of winter. And the Russian armed forces will be. So we're going to have multiple factors uh, converging that will be on the side of the Russians. Kherson looks bad, but in the overall scheme of things, it's fairly trivial. It's much like the withdrawal from part of the Kharkov region that at the time was declared to be a great victory. And it was only later that it emerged that the Russians lost relatively few soldiers, whereas the Zelensky regime took horrifying punishment because the Russians just hammered them as they went into this abandoned area. The, the um, Zelensky regime at this time is very worried about going into the Kherson area because they're afraid that they will be pounded the same way that they were pounded in Kharkov. Even the French intelligence has been warning the Zelensky regime that the Kherson withdrawal might well be a trap. And so, you know, yes, the, I saw that. How can I put this? Uh, it might be a trap. Here's something else that might be, Gonzalo. I don't myself believe it, and I infer from what you've said, neither do you. But there is a possibility that now that the Russians are on one side of the Dnipro and the Ukrainians are on the other, uh, that this could be the line of partition and that maybe there's some secret negotiating going on or perhaps might go on in Bali at the G20. What do you think about that possibility, that this could have been a strategic withdrawal to bring about easily demarcated lines uh, that could separate the warring parties? 
Well, that's a very good, that, that is a possibility. Anything is possible. But I don't believe it for the following reason. Number one, the Kremlin knows that the West is, as they say, agreement incapable. And that whatever agreement they come, they, they come to, that the West will violate it or ignore it to their benefit. Uh, look at Minsk II. The possibility of a Minsk III agreement, the Russians know that the West will not live up to it. And they know that the West, the NATO countries, will flood Ukraine with even more weapons and men. And so there is no advantage to the Russians in freezing this conflict, uh, but a great deal of detriment to freezing the conflict. So I don't think that this is going to happen. I think that we are basically in an operational pause while the ground uh, hardens, because right now it's late fall and it's a rainy season, and so it's muddy. The mud is like quicksand. It just sucks you in, and you can't move in it. And so the Russians are waiting for the winter when the ground hardens, and at the same time using this pause to really assemble all the men that called up. The, the notion that they're going to freeze this conflict, as they have done before. They, they froze it in Georgia. They froze it in Syria. If you think about it, they froze it in Ukraine between 2015 and 2022. I don't think that this is going to happen now. Uh, I, of course, I could be wrong, but I would be extremely surprised. Furthermore, I think that the, politic, the politics, the internal Russian politics, would almost not allow Vladimir Putin to freeze this conflict at this time. I don't think... Because we always have to remember one thing. Vladimir Putin is a moderate within the Kremlin. And we have seen other people, like Dmitry Medvedev, they are hawks. And there are a lot of hawks in the Kremlin who want this over with already. They want a clear, um, unambiguous victory. And so the notion that they're going to withdraw from Kherson and then freeze the conflict, I think, would be intolerable to a large segment of the Kremlin. And do keep in mind... Uh, Vladimir Putin is the president, but he, at the end of the day, has to convince the people that he leads to go in the direction that he is leading them to. If the people feel that, they, that he is leading them in the wrong direction, they are not going to follow him. And so I think at the time, the notion that it's going to be frozen, I find it very difficult to believe that that will happen. I think that they're going to go into a big offensive, and, uh, and then we'll just have to see how that goes. Now, Gonzalo, finally, and I'm grateful uh, for your time at this late hour. Uh, it's no, just I, as long as you want. As, uh, I, I, I owe you. I owe you. So as long as you want. God bless you. Uh, uh, it's just broken, and you may not have heard yet where you are in Ukraine, but a multi-billion dollar scandal has just exploded in the United States, where a cryptocurrency... Uh, FTX! With, yeah, you know it. Now, um, one of the extraordinary features of this scandal, and it's only hours old, is that the Ukrainian government are claimed maybe even are claiming themselves that might explain a few things, as Garland Nixon said earlier, what money are we put it into, into crypto? Uh, that Biden was giving Ukraine money, Ukraine was giving 
the crypto company money and the crypto company was giving donations to Biden. If established, <laughs> that would be the that would be the mother of all scandals, wouldn't it? Oh my God! Oh my good! I, I'm sorry. Okay, this is breaking now. I assume. Okay, so ten you see this US guy on the right? To Ukraine. There's, there's a man on the right. Yes, the yes, screen. yes. Of course. There's two. Yeah, that, there's that, two criminals. That individual is. Um, there's two criminals. Yeah sitting next to him tony blair and bill clinton yeah. but it turns yeah, out and that's that the minor criminal on the right with the shorts on may have nicked billions of dollars some of which oh my god he gave 45 million dollars to joe biden just this year yes and promised a hundred million in in 24. so this could bring the whole show down, couldn't it? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I find it just incredible, you know, but at the same time, screamingly funny. And, uh, and, and the thing is, of <laughs> yes. course, I realize that the opposition in the United States, the so-called Republican Party, they're a useless lot. They're gelded. They are men with no honor or dignity or, or any kind of of oomph, you know, they, they, they are weaklings. And so I, I wonder if Joe Biden will skate away from this issue in his doddering old way, uh, because, you know, I, I think this is outrageous. In any other administration, this would have called for impeachment. I mean, as simple as that. If, sure. if this is true, that this was some sort of circular trade between the Biden administration to the Ukraine government, to FTX, money to the Biden administration, this would be something that uh, an impeachable offense uh, and something that would merit removing the president for the kind of corruption that we're talking about. It would. It would. But at and, this and point, sending George, the president to prison. Uh, yeah. I mean, but at, at this point, in, you know, after the Hunter Biden life, thing. Uh, a long time. Uh, I know yeah. uh, what these how these criminals operate. This smells like a gigantic rat to me uh of uh yes of the perfect <laughs> kickback the perfect kickback you you donate yes. billions to ukraine the most popular cause in the world ukraine buys crypto uh from these jokers in their shorts in the bahamas and the joker gives the democrats 47 i've got the number $47 million, making them the second biggest donor after George Soros. George Soros. <laughs> He's number one. FTX I'm sorry. is number two. Well, listen, uh, stay safe, oh, Gonzalo. I'm glad that we uh, got through to you. And good luck with your own podcast. How can people see that? Well, uh, it, it's on Patreon, and you can go to any of, uh, you can either go to my Roundtable channel or my Gonzalo Lira Again channel, and uh, the link is there. I want to thank you so much. I, I always, you know how much I appreciate you and respect you and just will always have a, a soft spot in my heart for you. And, and it's good to see thank you. Thank you, brother. I like your new look. I, I like the, the, you're looking good, looking sexy. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's yeah, so good to I, see I'm you. I'm the same way I was. I'm the same way I was when I was 18, and I'm mighty <laughs> pleased about that. I, I I recommend no carbs to everyone. Avoid the carbs, Gonzalo. Avoid everything out there and stay safe until we Thank can you. talk to you again, Gonzalo Lira. Thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Well, uh, we finally got our man. I hope you'll agree. He's always worth listening to. Uh, the uh, preference of political over military decisions were, of course, what done for Hitler's Sixth Army in the salient around Stalingrad. They wanted militarily to withdraw. Hitler told them they had to stay for political reasons and the history books will tell you what happened next. I'm not a military expert, though I know far more about military affairs than most politicians uh, from the earliest age as a boy soldier to 50 years of studying wars and warfare. And I think that the Russians made the correct military decision in withdrawing from the city of Kherson. Uh, the political humiliation of it is obvious and all of their enemies are dancing with delight. But as any fool knoweth, he who laughs last laughs loudest. And I have no doubt in my mind at all uh, that the Russians who cannot afford existentially to lose this war and to lose any more territory on the uh, east of the Dnipro will, as Gonzalo, who's there, predicted, move on under the guise of General Winter, who's setting in now and freezing the land of the Ukraine. Soon, the snow will fall and be everywhere. The Russian weaponry is built for that. The NATO weaponry is not. We'll, of course, bring you further news on all of these breaking stories on Wednesday at 9 p.m. 9 p.m. UK time. Do note the difference in time. 9 p.m. UK time for the midweek mother of all talk shows. It's been marvelous for me. I hope it was for you. It's all I have time for. I wish you all a peaceful night and especially I pray for an early end to the suffering of so many in so many countries under war and bombardment. I've been George Galloway. This has been the mother of all talk shows. You've been a wonderful audience. Good night. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.